I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, May 27th, 2014. Coming up, we find out about the weirdest stars in the universe and the biggest stars in the universe, and what it's like to be an observational astronomer trying to figure out what these big, weird stars do. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We all know people who believe they know more about a topic than they actually do. And perhaps each of us have fallen victim to that fault ourselves from time to time. In a talk titled, Reflections on the Failure of Ignorance to Recognize Itself, presented last week at a meeting at the Association for Psychological Science, Cornell professor David Dunning outlined his research into the accuracy and, more commonly, the errors of human judgment. He explained the Dunning-Kruger effect, in which a person who performs poorly in a certain task is unable to recognize their own incompetence. As it turns out, the skills that we use to become competent are the same ones that are necessary for us to assess our own competency. This leads to a situation that sounds like an Abbott and Costello routine. Those with a great deal of knowledge about a subject also know how well they know it. And those that don't know something don't know that they don't know it. The error, said Dunning, is that people tend to form their impression of how well they're doing based on preconceived notions about whether they're skilled or not. He offered a few suggestions for combating this common tendency in an educational context. The underlying concept of his approach was that discomfort is the enemy of overconfidence. So strategies that introduce uncertainty or discomfort into the learning process can give students a more accurate sense of their competence. For example, to facilitate this, a teacher can spread out lessons, since cramming tends to give students confidence that outlasts their actual retention of the material. Dunning stressed the universality of this effect. Even the geniuses among us fall prey in some aspect to this, since no one is competent at everything. Or as Dunning put it, our knowledge may be vast, but our ignorance is by definition infinite. That report from The Observer, a publication for the Association for Psychological Science. The discovery of a small molecule that prevents bacteria from forming into biofilms, a frequent cause of infections, has been reported in a recent article in the journal PLOS Pathogens. The antibiofilm peptide works on a range of bacteria, including many that cannot be treated by antibiotics. The prevalence of antibiotic-resistant organisms is on the increase. The ability of antibiotics to combat different diseases is losing ground. Many bacteria that grow on skin, lung, heart, and other human tissue surfaces form biofilms, highly structured communities of bacteria that are responsible for two-thirds of all human infections. There are currently no approved treatments for biofilm infections, and bacterium biofilms are considerably more resistant to standard antibiotics. Researchers from the University of British Columbia 
found that the peptide, known as 1018, consisting of just 12 amino acids, the building blocks of protein, destroyed biofilms and prevented them from forming. Bacteria are generally separated into two classes, gram positives and gram negatives, and the difference in their cell wall structures make them susceptible to different antibiotics. But the peptide 1018 worked on both classes of bacteria, as well as several major antibiotic-resistant pathogens, including E. coli and MRSA. Researchers at the Cockrell School for Engineering at the University of Texas at Austin have built the smallest, fastest, and longest-running tiny synthetic motor to date. The team's nanomotor is an important step to developing miniature machines that could one day move through the body to administer insulin for diabetes when needed or target and treat cancer cells without harming good cells. With the goal of powering these yet-to-be-invented devices, the engineers focused on building a reliable, high-speed nano motor that can convert electrical energy into mechanical motion on a scale 500 times smaller than a grain of salt. The researchers successfully designed, assembled, and tested a high-performing nanomotor in a non-biological setting. The team's three-part nanomotor can rapidly mix and pump biochemicals and move through liquids, which is important for future applications. The nanomotor could fit inside a human cell and is capable of rotating for 15 continuous hours at a speed of 18,000 RPM, the speed of a motor in a jet airplane engine. The researchers believe nanomotors could provide a new approach to controlled biochemical drug delivery to live cells. The team's study was published in a recent issue of Nature Communications. are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. The universe is weird. Scientists and non-scientists alike often like to think of the universe as being well-ordered and predictable, but sometimes things happen that we don't expect or we discover something weird that doesn't fit in with our models. For many scientists, this is extremely exciting. The weird things fascinate us, and we want to understand why they are weird and what that tells us about how the universe works. Dr. Emily Levesque, an astronomer who studies big stars, weird stars, distant stars, and exploding stars, is a postdoctoral Hubble Fellow and Einstein Fellowship researcher at the University of Colorado at Boulder. She received a physics degree from MIT and a PhD in astronomy from the University of Hawaii, which resulted in the Astronomical Society of the Pacific awarding her the Robert J. Trumpler Award for Outstanding Ph.D. Thesis. And this year, she was awarded the Annie Jump Cannon Award by the American Astronomical Society for her work studying massive stars. Dr. Levesque is here in the studio with us today to talk about her favorite weird astrophysical phenomena and the life of an observational astronomer. Welcome to the show, Emily. Hi, thank you for having me. So... 
let's start with the only slightly weird, and then we'll get into the truly bizarrely weird later. You started off working on massive stars. Uh, what are massive stars? Why are they interesting? So massive stars are, by definition, any star with at least eight times the mass of our sun. And there's a number of reasons why they're interesting. The reason they caught my attention is because these are the stars that we see exploding as supernovae. These are stars that make neutron stars or black holes. And what's interesting to me about them now is that some of the most extreme explosions we see for massive stars are visible across the entire universe. We see stars exploding 13 billion light years away. At the same time, they have these very handy local twins in galaxies very near our own. So we can pick these stars up as very distant lighthouses and use them as cosmological tools. And then we can also turn around and study them in a great amount of detail. So they have really diverse applications. So these are stars. You said they're eight times or more than eight times the mass of our sun. Yes. So our sun's not a massive star. It's just a generic old plain run-of-the-mill star. Our sun is a very garden-variety typical star. But we love it. We love it. It's very important <laughs> to us. And it's probably a good thing we're not living near one of these massive stars, I assume. True. The massive stars you're talking about, they're not very common? No. Massive stars are much rarer than stars like our sun. Just because they're more massive and because of what we know about star formation, they're much shorter-lived and there's a much smaller population. But they're pretty spectacular when they're around. So the, the most massive stars are pretty rare. Yes. And then they get stars, lower mass, get more common? More and more common, yep. And these most massive stars, they're also they're extreme in other ways. They're, they're the hottest stars? Yep, they're the hottest stars. They are sometimes very short-lived. They have... What is short-lived short -li to an astronomer? <laughs> short-lived to an astronomer is a mere 5 to 10 million years years, Puh, just as opposed blink. to our sun will live 10 billion with the B years. So, <laughs> yes. So, so you have to catch these stars while they're in their short-lived life cycle here. Yes. Are there many of these massive stars that people can easily see, or do they have to you know, go to a major research observatory. There's plenty that people can easily see. Um, anybody that enjoys looking at the constellation Orion knows Betelgeuse, which is probably our best-known red supergiant. It's about 645 times the radius of the sun. It's very bright. If you look at it, you notice it's very red, and it's one of many massive stars that we can see just with the naked eye. So that's that's a big star in our solar system, we would be in trouble if we, if we had that in the middle there. Yes, it would reach out past the orbit of Mars. Ah, uh, not so good, not so yeah. good. But you, you said it's a red star, um, mm -hmm. but aren't most of, most of these massive stars tend to be blue? Massive stars, as most people study them, um, the assumption is that they're blue and they're very hot, but lots of massive stars, as they begin to age and run out of fuel, will actually become very, very cool at least by stellar temperature standards. And when that happens, they turn red. Okay. And after they go through the red giant phase, then other exciting things can happen. Yes. <laughs> they can potentially Such explode. As. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll blow up. So besides going out beyond Mars, they'll blow up. So it just makes you gives you a bad day overall. Yes. <laughs> so what is important about studying these stars that blow up? We can understand a lot about how a star evolves. Um, stars are born and evolve and then die in these tremendous explosions. 
We know that supernova explosions are one of the means of making heavy elements in our universe. We are star stuff. Exactly. This is where some of the star stuff comes from. And you also talked about the connection with very, very distant explosions, uh, gamma ray bursts and things like that. So there's a connection here. Yes. So gamma ray bursts are a very specific and exotic type of stellar explosion. Um, Pretty much most massive stars that we know of will undergo core collapse. Their iron core collapses in on itself at the end of their lives, and they create these beautiful supernova explosions. A tiny fraction of them also generate this very brief burst of gamma ray radiation, which is incredibly bright. We can see it, like I said, out to great distances. And we're still working out why that is, why some stars create this burst of gamma rays and others don't. Could it be just something about a beaming effect, how they're pointed at us? Or is it the something inherent about a type of star that always does that? It's probably a combination of both. Like you said, those gamma rays come out in a very narrow beam. So we'll only see the ones that are pointed at us. But plenty of stars undergo a supernova explosion and don't produce any gamma rays at all. And it's a lovely puzzle as to why that is. They're they're quiet explosions. They're (laughs) quiet-ish. As quiet as a supernova (laughs) can be. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in space, no one can hear you explode, perhaps. (laughs) Why do we want to study these distant explosions? Uh, Gamma ray bursts have been interesting to lots of people because we could potentially use them as indicators of what's going on in the early universe, when you... Because looking at the far distance yep, means sends you're you back in time. back in time. Yes. So when we observe a gamma ray burst five or 10 billion light years away, we're seeing a star from five or 10 billion years ago. And we can try and work things out like the properties of that star or the properties of the galaxy where it formed. Understanding early galaxies and early star formation is really important in understanding how the universe became what it is today. So these serve as little beacons pointing us to areas that we might want to study more. Stars aren't necessarily always the same. The earliest born stars may have slightly different properties than stars we see today. Yes. um, Talking about supernovae making those heavy elements, the earliest stars in the universe had almost no heavy elements because there was no resource for making them. So the earliest stars were almost entirely composed of hydrogen and helium. And our understanding is that that will make a big difference in how those stars evolve and what their explosions should look like. So the farther back we can see in time, the farther back we're seeing in the universe's chemical evolution. We're talking here to Dr. Emily Levesque. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. And she's talking about uh, small stars, big stars, red stars, blue stars. It's all a Dr. Seuss menagerie. Um, And maybe one that's very fitting for a Dr. Seuss story. There are some stars that you're studying that uh, have a name I'll let you pronounce. (laughs) (laughs) Thorn-Zhitkov objects. Thorn-Zhitkov objects. So what is a Thorn-Zhitkov object? I'll make it easy by calling them TZOs. Okay. TZOs are probably great candidates for the weirdest type of stars in the universe. From Other than what you see on TMZ and in Hollywood, right? Possibly, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> possibly. All right. They, from the outside, look deceptively normal. They look like a normal, big, cold, red star. The surprising thing about TZOs is that rather than a normal core 
like our suns or like any other stars that's burning hydrogen or helium, its core is actually a neutron star. It's a star supported by the laws of quantum physics. It's this incredibly tiny little dense star that formed when another massive star exploded. We think that Thorn-Zitko objects come from two massive stars that have merged. One will have collapsed to make this tiny little neutron star, and the other is still a big, cold, massive star. First, how do you get two stars to merge here? They will be in a binary. They'll be orbiting each other. And depending on which scenario you like, one star will collapse into a neutron star and either slowly be engulfed or consumed by its companion, or when it collapses, it'll get a little kick in a particular direction and go flying into its companion. So you have a, a star within a star, effectively. Exactly. So how does this look any different than a star not within a star? It barely looks different. Um, the only signature so far that we know of for identifying a TZO is that the atmosphere of that star will have trace amounts of very unusual elements that you wouldn't see in a normal star. It comes from what happens inside the star, this central neutron star and the big puffy atmosphere that we see, the interaction between those two will create very strange heavy elements like rubidium or molybdenum. You'll get an overabundance of lithium. So if you compare the atmosphere of a TZO to a normal red massive star, that's the only difference you'll spot is these little extra abundances of certain elements. And so how many of these TZOs do we have? Possibly one. <laughs> they, um, for a long time, they were considered purely theoretical stars. They were the best kind. <laughs> it, yeah, they were proposed by Kip Thorne and Anna Zhitkov back in the late 70s. And a few searches have been conducted for them since. My collaborators and I did a survey a few years ago looking at these stars' atmospheres in a great amount of detail. And we're currently examining what we think is the first confident detection of a Thorne-Zitko object. Well, when we hear about that paper, we'll be sure to mention it here on How on Earth. We'll maybe pull you in to tell us where the star is uh, after <laughs> it's been published. <laughs> that would be great. So you're, you're an observational astronomer, yes. obviously. Uh, I know many people have an idea that of an observational astronomer going out in the cold of night into the dome, peering through the eyepiece and writing sketches of the things they see. Is that what you do? Usually, no. Usually, <laughs> observational astronomy is a bit different than that. How so? The way that I will usually observe is it starts, like many things in science, with writing a proposal. I will think of an idea, I will describe it, and I will submit it to a committee that decides whether someone will get what we refer to as a night on a particular large telescope. If the proposal is approved, then I make an observing plan. I'll usually fly to wherever the observatory is, and I will sit behind a bank of computers, not looking through the telescope directly, and control the telescope with the help of a telescope operator, and watch the data come in, and it comes in as ones and zeros, and will spend the rest of my research time analyzing it and figuring out what I've seen. So a few nights on the telescope could mean a few months or even a few years cranking the data through a computer at home. Certainly, and that's, that's if the night is clear. That's if ah. we don't have clouds. <laughs> and if you have clouds, 
that is it. If you have clouds, luck of the draw. It's the luck of the draw, and everyone has had beautiful weather and terrible weather. On how's your statistics going? My statistics are pretty good. Um, I did most of my PhD thesis on the Keck telescopes at Mauna Kea in Hawaii, and I had great luck with those. I have also flown down to Chile a couple times and spent two evenings sitting in a telescope that never opened because, in that case. We had such strong winds that it would have been unsafe. So not even just clouds, but winds. No, it was terrible. It was beautifully clear, and the stars looked beautiful, but the wind speed was just too high to safely open the telescope. So you talk about writing a proposal, going to the panels. You've actually sat on some of these panels, I believe, yes. in the past, mm -hmm. where you get to select who gets time, and then flying out to the telescope to do the observations. It's like a huge digital camera. You're not looking through the eyepiece. You're, you just have a display. But I assume you don't fly out to use the Hubble telescope. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> Delightful as that would be. As much as many of us <laughs> would like to. Oh, yeah. So what is it like? How do you use the Hubble? Um, I have a Hubble program right now that's actually a kind of interesting format. Most Hubble programs, if they get approved, are scheduled in little chunks of five orbits or ten orbits. Hubble is done in orbits rather than nights. And Somebody will get time approved, they will get their chunk of orbit scheduled, and they'll know when their data's coming. The proposal that I have right now is actually what they call a snapshot program. And what this means is that when Hubble is scheduling groups of orbits, there will sometimes be a gap here and there. There will be one spare orbit where nothing has been planned. And what I've said is, if you have an orbit to spare and you're near anything on my list of targets, point at one of these. I have a list of 31 galaxies that I've asked Hubble to observe in any order at its convenience. So I'll sometimes get surprised. Just a couple of weeks ago, I got an email saying, hey, we're going to be observing one of your galaxies in a week. Get ready. And it's a nice and very efficient way of using those spare orbits that are available. Hubble really tries to maximize the science sure. per orbit. I imagine astronomers <laughs> standing on street corners with a sign saying, do you have an orbit to spare? Yeah. <laughs> you get Hubble time by orbit, not yes. by hour or by night or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then the data come down, and then you crank through the data just like you do from any other telescope. Exactly. You have a Hubble and Einstein fellowship. You're a postdoc. Just in case people don't know what, how those fellowships work or what a postdoc is, do you want to just explain that a little bit? Sure. So I had an Einstein fellowship for the past three years. I'm currently a Hubble fellow. And a postdoctoral research fellowship means that 100% of my time is spent on research. I have salary and research support from, right now, the Space Telescope Science Institute, the same people that run Hubble. And it means that I really have a delightful amount of research freedom, that I work on massive stars and this topic that I've been working on for so many years. But if I were to wake up tomorrow and say, my God, I'm really interested in Mars, this kind of fellowship funding and flexibility means that I can pursue these other areas. And it means that I can do riskier projects, like looking for a Thorne-Zitkov object. <laughs> so it's a really excellent chance to focus 100% on research. Well, I hope you have fun following your nose wherever it leads you and whatever telescopes it takes you to. Thank you. That was Dr. Emily Levesque, astronomer at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Thank you for coming on the show, Emily. Thank you for having me. Uh, 
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Beats Antique and County Road X. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have any questions or comments? We'll call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>